Yeah, Dan, you're a Cronenberg fan, right, Dan? Yeah, 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 I like Cronenberg stuff. I mean, he's pretty talented, I guess. He's made some okay stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's a master. He's incredible. What's your favorite? Um, Honestly, what we're going to talk about today ranks up there pretty high. I won't spoil the title just yet. It ranks up there pretty high. I like Crash. The one that's not the truly obscene one about people living in LA. <laughs> Yeah. They don't make erotic thrillers like that anymore. I'll tell you that. Oh, uh, man, I miss nudity in Hollywood. There was very little blood in this film for a Cronenberg film. But there's there's a lot of body... There's some body horror, yeah. at least in in the sort of like contortions of the way yeah. that Kira Knightley is enacting hysteria. Does, I feel like maybe we should say what we're doing now before uh, and introduce the pod. We watched... Crash, which is about how in LA sometimes people crash into one another just to feel alive. Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm Patrick Blanchfield. I'm Danielle. Today we're doing the first of an envisioned series on, I guess, what you could call psychoanalysis in film. And we are talking about Cronenberg's 2011 film, A Dangerous Method. Um, featuring Kira Knightley, Michael Fassbender, and Viggo Mortensen, um, as Sabina Spielrein, Carl Jung, and Sigmund Freud, respectively. It is based, I should say, on the 1993 book by John Kerr, A Most Dangerous Method. They took the most out of the title when they adapted it, um, but it is, it is a very dangerous method. Um, let me say one or two things about it before we just get into it. Does that sound does that sound good? Yeah. Just a couple of like key themes to watch out for. Um, triangulation, triangles, <laughs> um, people not communicating directly. Uh, the relationship between sexuality and death. Sabina Spielrein, played by Kira Knightley, is going to be prefiguring what we'll come to know as the death drive. Uh, I would also say that uh, the idea of women as objects of exchange among men is is pretty important here. I feel like. The, the question of freedom, like freedom, yeah. the, the points of the movie where it basically says the theme, like what is freedom truly? I just wish to be free before it's like, yes, freedom. It, it, it's a little heavy handed. <laughs> it's a little heavy handed. <laughs> and I guess I should also say that the, the title, the title feels like it's really meant to be like kind of like distant and elusive, but it's really, really concrete. Um, John Kerr in the book is like, Freud, fucking tell us your method already. Like, why are you sitting on it? You keep publishing all of these things about psychoanalysis and your results, but how do you actually do it? Um, and it's so, like, the title is actually important here. Like Freud's withholding of the techniques of the psychoanalytic method. And thus, um, which what's really important from the perspective of scientists, like the, it's non-replicability you know, so to the point of where, and we'll get into this in a minute, like was what Jung was doing with Sabina Spielrein, which forms sort of the center of 
the film? Like, was it actually psychoanalysis? Anyway, yeah. Patrick, what's this movie about? I mean, look, look so, so this movie is about the relationship between a young Carl Jung, uh, Sigmund Freud, his sort of would-be father or like imagined father and father of psychoanalysis. And then these sort of triangulations around a woman named uh, Sabina Spielrein, who in the movie played by Kieran Knightley is... Uh, bears only a sort of passing resemblance to uh, the actual Sabina Spielrein, who is a kind of remarkable woman uh, and psychoanalyst who I think we'll talk about. But just to sort of say this up front, like Kerr's book was written in like in the early 90s. Yeah. And uh, the scholarship on Sabina Spielrein has, has really changed in like about the past decade or so. Uh, so for example, like it's not clear that Jung ever even analyzed her. Like there's some stuff in, in the, in the biographical history that is contested and, and not really reproduced quite as well in the movie. Uh, we'll talk more about this as we get to it. But like, so this is like a, it's a, it's an attempt to tell the story of the struggle between Freud and Jung using this sort of heavily fictionalized actual person as a kind of like object of exchange between them or an object of contestation. Yeah. So I stumbled on this movie after I started um, reading some Freud it, and it popped up. I honestly had no idea that Cronenberg had made this film. This completely went under my radar. Didn't realize it came out when it came out. Uh, and I was just straight up Googling movies about Freud because, you know, I just want to see how he's depicted. And uh, lo and behold, there was Cronenberg with the Freud movie. So I think this viewing was probably about my fourth viewing. Oh, um, wow. This, I've, I've got a soft spot for this movie. I love movies about people in rooms talking. It's like my favorite kind of movie. I hate action scenes. I just want interesting ideas. Please. Thank you. Make it interesting to look at. I'm a happy boy. Was this the first time viewing for any of you? Yeah, this is my first time seeing it. I, I am. I teach some of the Sabina Spielrein stuff, and I'm very familiar with her biography. Uh, and, and Otto Gross, you know, played by uh, Vince Cassell here, amazingly, is very oh, close yeah. to my heart. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I can't wait to talk about him. But I, like, denied myself the pleasure of this movie in a kind of weird way until now. So I, I literally just saw it today for the first time. Um, I saw it in the theater when it came out. Um, and then I just watched it again with Patrick and it was definitely like a very different experience um, both, you know, cinematically and also just, I know more about psychoanalysis now than I did when it came out. Um, but yeah, I'm, I've, I think this is the only Cronenberg film that I've ever seen because body horror kind of freaks me out. A weird thing about the genre of this movie. I know that it is just people in rooms talking to each other. Mostly yeah. um, there, there is kind of an underlying horror element to it. And it also has some of the trappings of like superhero origin stories as cheesy as that is to yeah. say, and that it's a lot of setting up who is this and who is this and how do they relate to each other? And you don't really get like pitched pitted high interpersonal like relational drama until really like the last I don't know what 25 minutes of the movie it takes a long time for those puzzle pieces to get set up properly yeah and I guess I would also say I mean I think about the epistolary novel as a genre um this is in some ways an epistolary film it's very driven by excerpts from the actual letters that Freud and Jung were writing back to each other um during the brief period where where they had a very intense friendship is not really the right word. An Let's overdetermined say, friendship, overdetermined yeah. relationship, symbolic father son ship, whatever. All sorts of. They were also professional competitors and colleagues. So their letters to each other, and then also Spielrein's letters to Jung, and eventually 
to Freud um, and then Freud and Jung writing back to each other about Spielrein. Yeah. Yep. Right. Spielrein is very much the object of the movie and of a lot of sort of uh, like discursive like circulation, all these letters and assessments of her and uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As both as patient and as love object. Um, And this is one of the things that is really, um, I think the movie is enhanced in some ways if you read the book first, because uh, some of the part, some of, some of the real fidelity here is to those original letters yeah. um, more yeah. than like, as Patrick was saying, like the portrayal, for instance, of, of Spielrein. And, and, you know, we can talk about the portrayals of, of Jung and Freud, which I think are a little bit more complex. It's interesting that she is kind of this object of the whole thing in, in this circuit of other people's reminiscences, because like, yeah, as, as Abby points out, like, I think Spielrein has her own voice, but also like Jung has, I think, the last count is like Jung told this has written about the Spielrein case like 12 separate times. And every single time the version is very different. Like he's an incredibly unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it's, it's a text to take on with with a bunch of caveats, but it is a ritual. Yeah. And it's like a really interesting choice for an adaptation. It's a long book. It's like 600 some pages um, and has enormous amounts of original, epistolary source material. Like it's also a pretty good place to go for a history of this particular period of psychoanalysis to get introduced to figures that some of whom we see in the film, like Otto Gross, um, but like, you know, Carl Abraham is in the mix. Uh, Ferenzi is in the mix. Loyler is in the mix. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very scholarly book. Like I, yeah. I don't think reading this, I would be like, I'm going to turn this into a period piece film, but it works. It does work. It it does work. Mm -hmm. I like in all this conversation, there's one character that none of us have mentioned that pops up all throughout the movie. And that's Young's wife. Oh, is is shrunk down to be a housekeeper slash perpetually pregnant character. And that's pretty much the entire role she serves. So some people speculate that she was the one that, started the letter writing campaign about Jung's affairs. This has been speculated about. Really? Yeah. Isn't is, that what is implied heavily in the film? It it, 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 it comes close to that. Like she is, appears to be, well, here, we, we, let's get to okay. it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's get, get to it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The film opens in 1904 at the Bergholtzli in Zurich. And Patrick, do you want to say just a little bit about where that is? Because it's pretty significant, yeah, um, both for the film and for the history of psychoanalysis. Yes. So like psychoanalysis uh, has in its sort of origins, like these, it has this kind of polycentric sort of origin story. If you're following the standard edition episodes we've already seen how freud has these ties to paris where he studied under charcot right and later we'll we'll be getting to the texts in the standard edition where he has some engagements with uh with berlin and with the sort of thinking that's happening there but the the real centers of of the psychoanalytic movement like during this early period are between vienna berlin and finally zurich right and Mm -hmm. so, so it's a very germanophone sort of initially middle Europa kind of thing. And traditionally speaking, Freud, you know, is very much associated with Vienna. And uh, of course, as he ties to Berlin, but Jung and sort of the people that become the Jungians are associated with what happens in Zurich. But but at the time that this movie starts, 
the Bergholzi, or I'm going to mispronounce it, whatever, this sanitarium under the care of Eugen Bloiler is a, like the leading psych, uh, psychoanalytic inpatient, or at least psychotherapeutic with strongly psychoanalytic elements in inpatient enterprise in Europe. And yeah. this is where uh, Jung is completing his do doctoral work on word association stuff, but also seeing patients. Bloiler himself is a, is a prominent figure. He probably coins the term ambivalence, or at least Freud credits him with this idea of ambivalence. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a it's 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 nothing like the salpetriere. We've talked about that one or elsewhere, right? But it's it's it involves various types of talking cures and various types of rest and relaxation. But it's just a kind of interesting place. And and Zurich in general too is just to say about this is is both the place where there is this interesting inpatient model, but also it's a site of a lot of like um, it, it's a weird like eccentric uh, space for all these exiles and expats and lots yeah. of artists and anthropologists like, you know, like Lenin is there briefly. Uh, Otto Gross, who we'll talk about, may have been exposed to anarchism there, right? And so, so, so as like the third center of psychoanalysis during this first period, it's where like the most woo stuff is happening. But also there are genuinely troubled people getting care. So yeah. But also like it's where, where Jung is, you know, ends up... Uh you know, editing like the Yar book, which, uh, you know, will, will turn into a really important psycho site for psychoanalytic publication. I, I think what we're getting at is that there's a really easy kind of slippage between like uh, founding of psychoanalysis Vienna. And one of the things that, that this film is very helpfully doing is pointing out that that actually like Zurich is is at certain points equally, if not more important in the development of that story. Um, so, okay, that's where it starts. And uh, Sabina Spielrein, played by Kira Knightley, is in the throes of hysterics. She is screaming. She's con being. She's contorting herself. She's in a horse-drawn carriage, being taken to the gates of the Bergholzli. Um, and very quickly, um, we see her in a room, and we see. The analytic scene, um, you know, Shay Jung at this particular time, which I think um, folk viewers who are are looking at this and thinking about what they know about like, oh, the, the consulting room and the couch and that are probably going to be surprised, but this is quite historically accurate. Um, there's no couch. Um, they're just in hardback chairs and Jung is like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to sit behind you. Um, and yeah. we're going to talk. The, the two things to sort of say here are first, like in the scene where she's in the carriage and, and, and she's having yes. a hysterical fit, like just flag that because like the ending of the movie is also her in a carriage this time riding away. Yeah. Uh, but also the, the description of the fit that we're given and the, the Kira sort of here nightly acts out that's drawn from actual hospital admission papers of Sabina Spielrein. I love the opening scene of this movie. I think it's great. The opening credits, it's, it starts on this like crawl of showing like pen striking paper. You see a lot of ink. It's setting up that the letters are going to be this, the center of the entire film, essentially. Yeah. And I, I'm expecting, you know, Victorian, whatever, like traditionally a movie like this would start on some kind of like city panorama and then come down into like an astute professor's office window or something like that. But here it like crash cuts to yeah. like wailing cries coming from a carriage that's like tossling down this like back road. And then the camera does this like crazy down low up close shot of Kira Knightley. Like she, when she contorts in this movie, man, yeah. oh man, it looks painful to yeah. look at. 
That's um, the body horror yeah. of this film. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's super effective and it, it does draw you in right away. And then then we cut after um after we've seen that that first scene with with Jung and, and Spielrein. Um, it's actually like there's a kind of hilariously didactic scene where you see Jung with his wife, um, Emma Jung, who is, you know, being depicted as this, as this sort of like Aryan princess and she's pregnant. And Jung is like, why won't Freud share the method? <laughs> why won't he tell us what the method is? Grumble, grumble, grumble. My dad isn't talking to me. Emma yes. says something. Well, they've never met. So he hasn't met Freud at this point. He hasn't point. met yeah. Freud. And yeah, Emma's like, why don't you ask? And, he's and like, he says something else too. Emma's like, perhaps Carl Jung, future famous psychologist and originator of <laughs> archetypes, you would consider experimenting with this new treatment modality you have discovered through Sigmund Freud, namely, quote unquote, talk therapy. And she says, talk, he says the talking cure. <laughs> the talking, yeah, it's, it's, fair. it's a little clunky. The, the, but. the film is not this didactic most of the time. Perhaps she's the one. What one? The one you've been looking for, for your experimental treatment, the talking cure. Yeah, I should say just to, in the interest of, of clarifying something here. So in, in John Launer's biography of Sabina Spielrein, which I think is 2018, uh, it's no longer clear that Jung actually did more than her introductory psychiatric admission. Really? So, yes. So in the movie, right, as Abby's described, he's, he actually has these two chairs and he's like, here, you will sit here, you will do talk there, I, you will free associate, I will ask questions from behind you, et cetera. He walks her through this. Yeah. Uh, and in John Kerr's book, it says they did this for two months. Yeah. So, so Launer basically says that Jung was there for the admission. Like he did the intake. He did and that's the intake. It. Wow. Um, and then has no other notes on her because he does his military service Yeah, thing. so he does go off to yeah. military service. So right? in the movie, yeah, in the film, it's implied that they develop quite a relationship because when uh, our Carl has to go to his military, his brief stint as a military doctor for a month or two, she has a, a very florid reaction. Right? Yes, she, and uh, she's like disporting herself, like cavorting in the pond, muddy and whatnot. And, uh, you know, Bloiler comes up and she gives, and this part I think is actually kind of yeah. wonderful, that sort of like coy smile of the hysteric that is sort of like both innocent and knowing, like all, um, all at once. And then we get back to her, uh, you know, military service is done with, he's back. Um, and suddenly like two months later, it, it yeah. seems like it's like the next day. It seems yeah. like it's the yeah. next day. Um, it's an edit long. Yeah. It's an edit long. And she is ready, I guess, or the demands of the film require that yeah. she is ready to be like the more most forthcoming patient in the history of psychoanalysis yeah. because he's sitting behind her and she's like, I can't sleep. There's this thing pressing against my back at night. But when I, when I turned around, there was nothing there. You felt it against your back? Yes. Were you naked? I was. Were you masturbating? Yes. Tell me about the first time you can remember being beaten by your father. It's actually kind of remarkable. Like she's yeah. mostly acting with her jaw, 
like most of like the the hysterical fit is like gripping her face. Her mouth yeah. is being contorted as if from within. Um, and Jung is like, is this when you're masturbating? And she's like, yes. And then immediately he's like, tell me about the first yeah. time you were beaten by your father. And it's like, all of this is coming yeah. pretty, pretty fast. Yeah. Okay. And here's an important historical yeah. sidebar from, from Sabina Spielrein's life is not only that, in fact, she was beaten by her father, but that she, at this point, at least according to Kerr's book, doesn't know basically anything about adult sexuality to the point where her mother got the school she went to to change the curriculum yeah. to keep this from her. Yeah, wow. like She is like a sexual innocent, at least like she's an epistemological sexual innocent. She's had, as we will come to, to uh, learn, have many intense erotic experiences. Um, but it's, it's worth yeah. saying here, maybe now we can talk a little bit about who Sabina Spielberg actually was and how this brought her to this place. Because, yeah, yeah, the diversity, because there is this way in which, like, what the Cronenberg film does is it basically takes this woman who was, I think, by all accounts, a genius and yeah. turns her into kind of this sort of sex pot, right? And it, it, it to the point, and like, look, like, she plays the hysteric thing quite well, right? Like, like you know, she's always caught between these rictuses of agony and, and pain and pleasure. And, and you know, like she, after she acts out in the pond and boilers, like, oh, maybe we can get you to do some occupational therapy. And she's like, my occupational therapy desires are suicide or the end of the universe or something. <laughs> it's like, extremely metal, yeah, actually. Yeah, we see like the, the various like sort of nurse nun figures dunking her in an ice bath and she has this look of like postcoital bliss on her face and but but it, 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 in reality she was so the timeline it seems to be and this is again superseding Kerr's account and 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 the, the books I'm using here are um my god I've, I've read John Launer's biography which is called uh, Sex and Survival and I, I strongly recommend there is another more recent one I'm thinking about the Angela Sells biography, Sabrina Spielrein, The Woman in the Myth, which is really good about her early childhood and some other stuff. So, um, And then there's also that great chapter in Freud's Women. Yes, the Lisa Epic-Desi book. Yeah. yeah, I think it's with John Forster. Also. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have it with me, otherwise I would have consulted it. So um, so the deal is, uh, like working backwards, right? Sabrina Spielrein is born, I think it's 1885, uh, in Rostov-on-Don, which at this point is part of the Russian Empire. Uh, and she is... One of five, I think maybe perhaps six children born to a, a couple. Uh, her mother is a, a, a comes has has family ties to some prominent rabbinic scholars. Her father is a extremely successful businessman, but appears to have been a, a kind of both brilliant, as in like would for most of her life corresponded with Sabina Spielrein about abstract problems in physics, philosophy, and mathematics, etc. Uh, and you know she was. Uh, encouraged, she became a very, she, in the household, she was trained as a violinist, as a composer and all the hard sciences and stuff. And, you know, was speaking three or four languages by her mid-teens, et cetera. But, but it also appears to be the case that the father, in addition to being sort of this, this genius who raised this precociously brilliant daughter, was extremely abusive to her, probably sexually. The mother may have been abusive in other ways too. It's a little bit unclear about some of that. And she definitely had a trauma though uh, in her in her, I think it was early teens that sort of had sequelae that led her to the Bercolzi, which is when her beloved youngest sister dies at the age of six. And this is when she has her first sort of experiences of howling grief and sort of inappropriate public behavior that we associate with hysteria. When she gets to the Bercolzi, though, so the timeline that the Launer and I think Sells run with is that Jung basically does the admit for her 
and then goes on his military to uh, his, his brief stint, you know, of required military medical service. Bloiler arguably, and this is the argument Launer makes, does most of the actual therapeutic work with mm-hmm. Spielrein such that by the end of uh, Jung's military service, when he comes back, she's basically already better. Oh, interesting. So the way the, fi- so the, way the film is framed, basically, uh, she comes back and Jung, is, and Jung sort of senses naively that she needs a, uh, some sort of boost upon the, after, the, after the transferential blow of his departure. And he's like, mm. well, why don't you come work in our lab? Yeah. Right? And the, the actual sequence of events seems to have been first uh, that actually she showed market improvement and then proceeded to enroll and do work in medical school, at which point... Jung was like, as part of your medical school studies, come into my lab. And that what Jung would later describe as his analysis of her was actually a series of conversations that she and he had in circumstances in which she was also like attending lectures and stuff by him. And he was like telling her to come back to the lab to work on special projects, et cetera. And that these were largely unwanted. And just to to, to, to tie a bow on this, it strongly appears that Boiler cared a lot about her family dynamics to the point that Bloiler wrote a bunch of, there's some documentation by Bloiler being like almost certainly abused by her father mm. and insisting that her family not come visit her. Oh, interesting. It's being like her family is not to be brought near her and ex- yeah. demanding separation for that. Jung, for his part, and contra the depiction in the movie, appears to have not really talked about her family and never to have addressed the question of abuse with her at all. Okay, so uh, there's quite a lot. Wow. Yeah. So the stuff that so the stuff that happens that, that that like some some of these the symptoms that she reports like the thing on her like the like the mucus alien on her back may yeah. have been stuff she told Boiler. Some of it may have come up later mm. in these conversations with Jung, basically in his lab where he was kind of, it appears that they may have also been sort of sexual advances and that she didn't want them. Because mm. uh, like she had a very positive transference towards him as both the person who had admitted her and then as this mentor in this lab. And he kept on being like, so tell me about your dreams and tell me about your family and tell me about this. But doing it in a mode that was all about like, so how does this relate to how you feel about me? Mm. Uh, and yeah. the, the, the end sort of result here though that I think is kind of sort of striking is, the image we get in the film of 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 Jung as the sort of wounded healer or healer who doesn't realize that he's wounded, slowly building up this woman yeah. intellectually, et cetera, may not be entirely accurate. Uh, and that in fact, many of the things she told him in the conversations, which he later described as an analysis, yeah. were things she had already told and dealt with with Boiler earlier. So when we actually get in the film, the scene of... Spielrein in Jung's lab, it does seem there that she's still in the middle of treatment. But also we do get this sort of like, oh, Jung is like, of course you'll be able to be a doctor. I'm going to like encourage your dreams. And the way that this is depicted is, so so Jung at this point was in the midst um, of doing many, many experiments on free association. And of course, in another one of the scenes that that kind of thematizes triangulation, um, the patient, or not, I, I guess, I guess it's sort of a patient. Um, the, this, sorry, the test subject is the word I'm looking for, is Emma Jung. Yes. But in the film, Jung doesn't, say that it's his wife. She's just doing this free association test and uh, Kira Knightley is like, 
so was 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 that your wife? She yeah. seems sort of ambivalent about having a child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, you might be good. You might be good at this psychoanalysis thing. But when you said cap, she said where? Might that be a reference to contraception? You have quite a flair for this. Can I ask you something? Of course. Is she your wife? It's immediately a triangulated scene, right? Yes. Right, right, right. Young is like has his wife's has Emma's hands on like this, these pressure plates to determine like how she's re- like measure some sort of electrophysiognomic bullshit. Uh, and, and Kira Knightley is like working with this like giant transparent slide roll, like, like the truthometer, or like <laughs> tracking when shit hits the real. <laughs> and when Young is like, um, you know, is is like, what do you think of when I say the word divorce? And then you know, Emma, she goes, no. No, yeah, uh, it, but it really, it plays up a lot of things right from the fact too that like, again, Kira Knightley is, she's dark haired, her eyes are, like, like she, she, her eyes are sunk in her head. She's she's sort of contorted and sallow, but smoldering. You know, Emma is, again, like tall, posturally airy and like it's, they're really going for this. They're very much going, I mean, and then it's going to happen as soon as, and that's the next thing that's going to happen is that Jung is going to go to um, 19 Bergasa, um, which is where Freud lives. So he's going to go to Vienna. He's making his pilgrimage there. And there we get, uh, uh, you know, the the theme of <laughs> the, the Goyish Jung versus the Jewish Freud, which is, has already been set up in, you know, the relationship between uh, the Jewish Spielrein and uh, the extremely blonde, blue-eyed Emma Jung. So good to meet you at long last, Professor Freud. Most welcome. Please. So Jung and Freud get together in Freud's like extremely clubby looking office. Um, lots and lots of, uh, it, do- it doesn't look like, like if you've seen like the office in the Freud Museum or photos of that, it does not look like that. It looks like a men's club. What do you guys think of uh, Vigo Mortensen's Freud? Oh, that's a good question. He's great. I, I think he's he's good. I I don't. He doesn't seem like. I, I don't. I, does he seem very Jewish to you, Abby? I, I mean, I feel like they try to to go give you a sort of like Sephardic yeah. Freud um, in in this in this sort of uh, casting. I, I like that they're not going particularly hard for trying to get someone that looks like the historical Sigmund Freud. Yeah. Viggo Mortensen is way smoother, I think. Yeah, he's pretty classy coming down that staircase, yeah. But I liked it. I liked this casting. In fact, I like all of the casting in this in this film. Yeah. I feel like Vigo was shooting for the Freud of the page more than the Freud that you would have met in the flesh. Like yeah. smooth, quickly, cuttingly, quietly, very funny, always yeah. listening, always observing. I really like his Freud. I really like it a lot. He's very charismatic. I feel like one of the things that comes through here, though, that is, that is, and, and again, I'm not looking for like, just like fidel, like that. I, I think looking for fidelity in some sort That's of a like un, uninterrogated yeah. way is like not a particularly interesting way of looking at a period piece. Um, one of the things that we have talked about a lot on this podcast about, about something that's distinctive about Freud as a writer and um, in terms of, uh, not to reference the title accidentally, but in terms of his like own method, um, is that as uh, 
as Patrick likes to say, he posts his L's. Um, and he's often, like when he's not sure of himself, he's like pretty open about it. And I feel like this Freud is really like, I am right. I yeah. am right. Yeah. Sexuality is the ideology of, hyster- of hysterical neurosis. Yeah. Um, if you cross me, I think they really play up the idea of Freud as like, self-certain father figure. And I think he really was a a father figure to many people, but I don't think that sort of like real certainty about his theories is, is at all the case. Yeah. The film telegraphs this, I mean, in the first couple, the first time Jung sees Freud in the film and also IRL, right. And they have this famous conversation the last 13 hours yeah. Uh, it's the film is is pretty heavy handed, or at least very didactic about you know Jung being like, but perhaps not everything is about sex, and maybe we need a more PR tested friendly firm that like Lib- than libido. You know, so it's not quite as it almost is that clunky actually. The people but, will never yeah. accept sex. Yeah, yeah. And Freud corrects his pronunciation of psychoanalysis and shit. Yeah, I, I feel like the important thing to say here though is that one of the major things that brings them together in this famous 13-hour meeting is Sabina Spielrein, is that Mm -hmm. case. And so Jung tells this story, which is... Um, which is part of, as far as I can tell, like the, the it's in the Kerr book. I, I don't know if it's like the intake notes or whatnot, but it's a, a story that, that Spielrein tells from like being a child. Um, there's a lot of anal eroticism in this, in this, uh, um, well, in, in Spielrein's biography, I guess, but also in this film. Um, but it's a story about her sitting on her heel and both trying to defecate and also keep herself from defecating. And Freud's like, aha, of course. He, she's going to be like an, 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 you know, like an anal personality. Um, he, she's going to be like this, that, and the other thing. And Jung is like, no, 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 not this one. Those of my patients who remain fixated at the anal stage of their erotic development often come up with the most amusing details. And of course, all of them are finicky, compulsively tidy, stubborn, and extremely stingy with money. No doubt your Russian conforms to this pattern. Well, no, she doesn't. The masochistic aspects of her condition are much more deeply rooted than any anal fixations we may have uncovered. The two are intimately connected. She's like really disorganized. She's a masochist. She's uh, idealistic. And the other important thing that happens in this first meeting is the setting up of Freud's Judaism as essential to psychoanalysis in some way. It's not like the sort of claim that you will get in other places about psychoanalysis as the quote unquote, quote unquote, Jewish science, but it's about early psychoanalysis as being embattled. Yeah. Um, And Freud is like, hey, we're Jews. And this is my favorite scene in this whole movie. Jung is like, well, I don't see what difference that makes. And Freud goes, that, if I may say so, is an exquisitely Protestant remark. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so that's that's set up in in this 13-hour meeting. At this at this first meeting, um, they sit down for dinner together. It's uh, it's one of my favorite shots in the entire movie. Oh, yeah, it's hilarious. But yeah, it's so funny. They sit down at the end of the table, and Jung just launches straight into 
like intimate details about this case and arguments about psychoanalysis. And the whole time he's taking, I don't know, eight people's portions worth of whatever meatloaf they're eating or whatever, just loading his plate up. And Freud is just kind of gradually getting, it's just this long shot of the two of them. And Freud's getting annoyed and a little bit more annoyed. And then all of a sudden he stops and the camera for the first time cuts and shows like what twelve people yeah, entire, sitting at this table, whole all family. his sons yeah. and di- everyone. Is there. <laughs> yeah. They're all yeah. Oh, it's, it's it's such a good funny edit. It's so there's good. something about the that scene too where for all Freud's kids are there. We should say like is it, and this dynamic of father son that's playing out with Freud and 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 Jung. It, it's it's also happening against the backdrop of what's happening in the Jung household, and which has happened at this point, which is namely uh, Emma is. Emma's had two girls. Has, has, has had two girls and is clearly has some sort of postpartum depression stuff, but also has pr- maybe some characterological stuff too, but also, you know, Jung, Jung comes across like a real asshole. She's yeah. always saying, I'm going to give you a son. Uh, Jung is, Jung for among other things, complains to Freud about how, or may, maybe he complains to, to Sabine Spielrein at some point about how, uh, his wife got pregnant again and they had to miss a trip to, to America. Yeah, to, to the U.S. It, it becomes very clear that Jung is, is a self-centered asshole and his his wife is increasingly suffering in various ways while also not exactly being a princess herself but yeah anyway so then we cut back to zurich um and we get what is another one of my favorite parts of this film which is the auto gross section you patrick is you're obsessed with auto gross tell tell us a little bit about Autogross. Also, I love Vince Cassell because, oh. like, Vince Cassell is just—he's amazing he's so at everything. He—that's exactly yes. the word for him. He's loose. If anyone's seen Brotherhood of the Wolf, sorry, I'm just standing Vince Cassell. I love him in everything. He's great. In Ocean's Twelve, whatever. It, it doesn't matter. The point is, Vince Cassell plays Otto Gross, and he's perfect. <laughs> Otto Gross, we should say, is um, actual historical figure uh, and was important in, in the very prominent early. Uh, History of psychoanalysis. Yeah, and we'll talk about this more. In fact, I'd like to do a full episode on Otto Gross. Yeah. Otto Gross's writing is really remarkable, though also very fragmentary because of the way he sort of lived. You know, Otto Gross was, a, was, a, was, a, was an anarchist psychoanalyst, is yeah. fair to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's speculated that he may have spent some time in anarchist circles in Zurich. And in fact, at some point, so when he's brought to meet Jung, he is, he's meeting Jung at, also at the request of his father, uh, and to, to sort of, so it's both a professional consult, but also like Jung is analyzing him and so like dealing with his 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 health issues. And Jung, I just have to yeah. have to get this part in here. Jung is like, so it seems like you feel threatened by your father, and this is what Gross says. He says, anyone with any sense feels threatened by my father. He's extremely threatening. Yeah, his father was a monster. <laughs> I think I, I, if memory serves, his father. I, I sometimes get the him and Judge Schraber's father confused because they're both very similar. I think his father may have been like one of the first like criminologists, like. Austrian Empire criminologist or was like a like a which makes sense as to why Jung would because Jung is is kind of in that that world yeah. in the criminological world yeah, yeah. see some sort of he's he, in any event though he's an abusive monster yeah right like uh, he's he's one of these like massive horrible tyrant dads and uh in response to that Otto Gross both uh, d- develops both a kind of idiosyncratic psychoanalytic approach that involves things like uh, something he calls mutual analysis, where basically people take turns analyzing one another, and which is kind of what he and Jung sort of do in this movie, at least he like. Yeah. But also it, that idea of mutual which analysis. Which is foreclosed by yes. Freud when yes. Jung is kind of secretly sneaking up on trying to do that. Yeah, exactly. For, he, 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 that's a good call. Yeah, Freud has no part of this. Won't, won't tell uh, 
young some of his dreams. But the deal with with Gross he has too, boundaries. Yes, yep. he does. And whereas Gross do, does not. And and it's, it's speculated that Gross's idea of mutual analysis he may have actually gotten from Kropotkin via mutual aid. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. Uh, but but he wrote a lot. He was very invested in like a using psychoanalysis for liberatory political purposes. Yes. Uh, this also, he, so he's very much interested in like the idea, for example, of like uh, revolution. He's mm-hmm. very interested in the idea of overthrowing patriarchs. Uh, not surprisingly, given his background. In fact, yeah. he, at one point he tells Freud that he's- a little on the nose. He says, a Freud who thinks that he, he and Jung, Otto Gross and Jung, are the two possible people who can, are, are the two analysts capable of making an original contribution to our field is a lie that Freud has. But yeah, so he could have been the favored son. He could have been a Jung, basically. Yeah. Um, but well, like, Jung before Jung gets, uh, you know, ejected. Yeah. But he basically has, he a, does th- he has a theory of the sociogenesis of neurosis is basically mm-hmm. like Otto Gross's grand explanatory plan for everything is that the reason people are fucked up is because of, you know, patriarchy. And, the, and right. this leads him to, to two things. Uh, one to uh, kind of a, a fetish over what he takes to be matriarchy as being a better alternative and, and a celebration of the idea of overthrowing gods and masters and kings. Mm-hmm. He even has a line, I think he tells Freud that he wanted to, or it's, he tells one of his analytic buddies that he wants to die while murdering a judge, which is a kind of awesome thing <laughs> for... Uh, to that say, is, that yeah, is not in this film, but, but in the film he re, he represents, he, he clearly represents in what is like a little bit of a heavy-handed way like the idea of like freedom and specifically sexual freedom. Yeah. Um, and so like there's this, he has a couple of great lines um, in, in this sort of like mutual. And I mean, Jung is, Jung is analyzing him, but, but they're still talking yeah. like colleagues. Um, and, and, he, and Gross has this kind of throwaway line about how he can't possibly imagine a more stressful concept than monogamy. Yeah. And Jung is like, wait a minute isn't some sort of degree of sexual repression necessary like in a society? And Gross goes, no wonder the hospitals are full. Um, And then he's like, never oppress anything. And then he specifically, and this is again where I get annoyed with it being heavy handed, but I get it. It's fine. He's like, so you've never slept with any of your patients? (laughs) And yeah, Cassell is, while he's going through uh, (laughs) the office, like pocketing little pills, like like Dr. Sample packs of morphine I think he's like taking some like, like little like flasks and stuff like that. He gums some blow on the way in. It's, it's just to to round out the, 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 the the other half of the gross story, in addition to this anti-authoritarian, anti-patriarchal stuff and this weird sort of abstracted fetish of matriarchy is a lot of women and a lot of polyamorous arrangements with women, some of whom may or may not have known that these were kind of polyamorous relationships with women. So he's, he was he's somewhere between like prophet of sexual liberation and womanizer also yeah. with a drug addiction that would ultimately multi, like, multi, like poly drug addictions and some psychotic episodes probably bought up, brought on by Coke and other things. And he, he eventually uh, dies kind of horribly. I forget what this dies of exposure, like starves himself to death because he, or he, he comes to a grim end, which he is does. also prefigured in the, in the movie, but he's in the movie. He's presented as like this figure of, of total transgression. Yeah. Right. And he's got a yeah. thesis statement. Yeah. Okay. He gets, he literally gets to deliver a thesis statement and the thesis statement is our job is to make our patients capable of freedom. Yeah. But not to repress yourself is to unleash all kinds of dangerous and destructive forces. Our job is to make our patients capable of freedom. I've heard it said that you help one of your patients to kill herself. 
She was resolutely suicidal. I just explained how she could do it without botching it. Then I asked her if she didn't prefer the idea of becoming my lover. She opted for both. That can't be what we want for our patients. Freedom is freedom. But clearly, given the question that he's just posed to Jung, um, you know, for him, that does involve potentially sleeping with yeah. your patients. Um, and, you know, so that immediately sets us up because we get, so Spielrein is in the university now, or she's in medical school. Um, and she sees him outside of the context of the Bercolzi, Um, And she kisses him. And, you know, we get back to Otto Gross talking to Jung and he's like, dude, like beat her, like in a hot way. Like that's yeah. what she wants. Like just, just, <laughs> just, just do it. Like, like when we see, you know, so that's, that's uh, pretty much what happens. And we get our awesome know, spanking scene. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Jung comes up to, you know, Spielrein propositions him. And he, she kisses him and is sort of like, this is where my apartment, like, you know, yeah. come, come find me. And uh, he pretty soon comes up to her apartment and it's, it, it's on. And, uh, you know, they, they show the blood. Um, you know, I think he's sleeping. So, you know, it's implied that she is a virgin. I will say that yeah. historically, I did spend some time looking, looking into this and Kerr talks about it over and over and over is like a, did they do it? Did they not? Did they, um, yeah. like, cause there's all of this language in Spielrein's letters to Jung and, and some of, some of this, by the way, is in a diary that's yeah. sort of addressed to Freud. Yeah. I mean, the, just the, the sort of way that people are addressing other people about, I mean, it's, it's just like, it's like, at some point reading this book, I was like, oh, this is just like being in sixth grade. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Like people passing notes to yeah. each other. Um, but it does seem like it's possible that they did not have intercourse yeah. because uh, of there is all of this stuff about the fantasy and fear of Spielrein having Young's baby. Yeah, it seems like the the, the record that, that that Launer and I think Sells go with is, is that they were, it, they had some sort of relationship that was romantic or or whatever. It's uh, some sort of affair. Yeah, for about five months, yeah. and then it that appears also again the film makes her sort of the agent of this, like she broaches the possibility and plays to Young's various repressions. Louner and others kind of indicate that maybe he kind of took advantage of her and pushed for it. Uh, not just in the way that he structurally takes advantage of her for this movie as her therapist and does this. It actually seems like he kind of may have hounded her into this. Um, and then, you know, it, 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 it ended that later resumed a little bit, but it also, again, the way the film presents their relationship, she is sort of this femme fatale who wants him never to leave and who wants to just even wreck his marriage, etc. Whereas uh, the, 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 the counter narrative appears to have been that uh, first uh, she 
at a certain point describes him as a Don Juan. She's like, oh, this guy, I'm going to be the first of many affairs that this guy's had if I'm not already, you mm-hmm. know, number two or three. So she, she refers to him as Don Juan and she loses interest in him. But also all her female friends repeatedly call uh, Young a, quote, good for nothing is a term that's used over and over again. Uh, so I mean, who knows what personally she actually did feel. Right. Um, but all this, of course, is, 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 is counterposed because Freud soon gets involved with what's being written about Spielrein to others, right? And And I should say that when describing her, Jung, like, for example, at some point tells Freud that, like, from above, she is a, a most brilliant woman. But, for, for, like, for, but, but once you get below the neck, she becomes like a fish. Like, these weird kind of, like, <laughs> she's asexual. Yeah, we, Jung comes off like a real asshole in this movie. Sorry, Abby, well, Jung is the. I mean, this is a great part of this movie, is that Jung is the villain. And that is, like, as far as I'm concerned, basically correct. That's correct. Um, before we get back to... The like Freud talks to Jung about Sabina, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I want to just kind of say what's happening now is like a cutting back and forth, like between like Jung with Emma and Jung with Spielrein. So like um, right after this scene where we find out that she's a virgin, they cut immediately to Emma and him looking at this grand new house because it's important that he is not only a Christian, but a rich, um, a rich Christian. Like these are some of the things that made Freud think maybe he's going to be the inheritor of my kingdom because he's going to be acceptable to so many other people and as a non-Jew. Um, and because he, he's going to be able to have the funds. Um, and this money importantly comes from Emma. Okay. Yes. Um, and they're looking at the new house and Emma's like, um, if you cheat on me, I don't want to know. And also, I bought you a boat. Yeah. I expect you wish you were a polygamist like Otto Gross. If I were, it would be something quite different than what we have, which is sacred. I would have to be sure you understood that. I wouldn't want to know anything about it. I have a surprise for you. And then we go back to Spielrein, who is the absolute opposite of, you know, this sort of like, I, you know, there's this thing with Emma's like, I don't want to know. We don't have to talk about it. We can talk in these sorts of coded ways. Um, and then Spielrein is like, hey, like, what's it like when you make love to your wife? Like, is, yeah. it, is it good? And yeah. like, also, I want you to punish me. And then we cut back to like, there's a new baby for Emma. I mean, it just really goes back and forth. And Emma's like, will you come back to us now? Because it's a boy. Yeah. Finally. And so he cuts it off and it's, Oh wait, first, first Jung takes Spielrein on the boat that Emma bought him. The beautiful shot, that crane beautiful shot boat. that comes down with the yeah. two of them like cradling each other in yeah. the, the center of the boat. Lovely. It's yeah. the oceanic and feeling, clearly. Yeah. I think we we see Young on, what do we see him on that boat three times? One yes. with Spearline, one with Freud. Yes. And Couple then times with we Freud. see him Maybe by, by himself, himself, right? Yeah. 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 And I feel yeah. like there's this sort of thing here because the other distinction we're getting between Freud um, and Jung is Freud. Freud, the scientist who is absolutely yeah. insistent that like he is a materialist um, and the, and Jung being like, there is more stuff than there, like than is explicable via 
the scientific method. Um, and so I feel like there is this sort of like the, I mean, obviously like there's an actual boat, sure, but there is also a kind of like a woo-woo-ness yeah. to it. They're getting a little bit at the sort of like mystical tendencies of Jung through all of these sort of like watery shots with him. Yeah, Jung is, and Jung does things like, you know, at some point he predicts like synchronicities. He's calling out like coincidences and stuff. And, and Freud is like, this is, this is, this is woo goofy bullshit. And also like, he doesn't say it quite so bluntly, but like basically you as this white Aryan person, like, yes, you, you can represent the movement in certain ways, but also the idea that the movement could descend or the idea that the movement could tarry with talking about the occult is a liability that I, as a Jew, could not possibly like even fathom whereas you feel like you need to go there. Why should we draw some arbitrary line and rule out whole areas of investigation? Precisely because the world is full of enemies looking for any way they can to discredit us. And the moment they see us abandon the firm ground of sexual theory to wallow in the black mud of superstition, they will pounce. As far as I'm concerned, even to raise these subjects is professional suicide. You must... I knew that was going to happen. What? I felt something like that was going to happen. I had a kind of burning in my stomach. What are you talking about? the heating. The wood in the bookcase just cracked, that's all. No, it's what's known as a catalytic exteriorization phenomenon. A what? A catalytic exteriorization phenomenon. Don't be ridiculous. My diaphragm started to glow red hot. And another thing. It's going to happen again. What? In a minute, it's going to happen again. My dear young friend, this is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. You must promise... You see? That's just, you really can't be serious. There are so many mysteries. And I guess the other thing that's happening is that the film tropes, like, so so if Cassell qua... um, Otto Gross, yeah. Otto Gross is, is, is a view of, like, liberation or freedom, but that can involve, like, a complete transgression and pleasure... And Freud involves this kind of notion of repression and also like reminding everyone of his Judaism, but also like, you know, realistically assessing anti-Semitism in the society in which he lives. The therapy that Jung is described as sort of yearning for, but we never see him actually deliver. And that in some ways, like Spielrein realizes in spite of himself is like a therapy that gives people something. It's not, it doesn't doesn't just heal them. It gives them something or or think about their past. It moves them forward and gives them something creative and new to be. Right. Yeah. And that, and that's what seems to be driving Jung. And it's, it's, uh, I, it's deliberately difficult, I think, to, to resolve his own sort of personal trajectory in relation to that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to learn more about this and like, I guess we will probably have to talk about Jung yes. more on this podcast, even though neither of us cares for for Jung for like a whole host of reasons. Some of them related to anti-Semitism, some of them relating to the collective unconscious, some of them related to, you know, his heavy reliance on, on symbolism and universalism. Um, we don't have a lot of use for, for Jung. Um, Love some Jungians though. There's some yeah, real friends. Yeah, yeah for I mean, sure. No, if you're listening to this, to please do um, no But hate. I think there's this thing, but I was going to say is that like, I do, although I do not care for Jung, I do think that his, bio, his autobiography, um, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, is really, really interesting and yeah. really worth reading. Um, but, the, so the argument that, that Patrick is talking about here is staged back again in Freud's 
study and Freud is like, um, stop fucking around with mysticism and Jung does all that. He like does all this. He's like, he's, he's like, I'm feeling something in my diaphragm and like something falls. And he's like, it's going to happen again. And and you can just see Freud being like, this is not going to work out. Right. You're, you're it's. And and so I like the way they stage this sort of like basic temperamental and theoretical disagreement between them here. Um, I think that's, that's really nice. And the other thing I wanted to say is that like the name of this podcast is Ordinary Unhappiness. And that is a famous line from Freud about what the best that psychoanalysis can deliver to a patient is, is, you know, is freeing you from neurosis to a life of ordinary unhappiness where there can be, um, you know, you, you can experience love, you can have meaningful work, right? That is the argument here is Jung is like, we got to give them something more. And for Freud, that is fundamentally irresponsible. And he calls it playing God or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's worth just saying here that like the film doesn't quite tie the two, but I do think, and this is something that maybe we can talk about later in another episode that, that there's a, more than incidental connection between Jung's anti-Semitism and his mystical sort of yes. like destiny stuff. Yeah, we're gonna have to like we, really dig into that and we'll dig have into to, some texts and yeah. different. Uh, yeah, but but there, but but here it's it, the way it comes together in the film is essentially that Jung is trying to have things both ways, <laughs> right? And 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 clearly is enacting certain repressed sexual stuff that he's got going, but also like. It, he he's unwilling to like necessarily like he's not gonna go a full auto gross and be like this is part of my method right because auto gross basically has auto gross has the most dangerous method in this movie because he's like sometimes i tell my <laughs> patients that you know sure i'll sleep with you but like it's not going to fix your problems we're just going to have sex and either they choose to do that or they don't well, i think he also <laughs> says like he helps a patient commit suicide yeah. And, but also he slept with her for, I mean, yes, that is, that is the most dangerous method. It is true. Very chaotic. It's a very chaotic method. Um, Whereas (laughs) it becomes clear as, as the film progresses that there's, there's both some stuff that Jung doesn't want to sit with, but that he's willing to enact in private. I mean, Jung at different points in his life. I mean, like the protesting, again, just, just to be clear about this folks, like Jung's anti-Semitism, like on the record written stuff is just beyond the pay. Like it is, yeah, we're not yeah. talking about it that much today <laughs> yeah, because it actually doesn't play that big of a role yeah. in his writings at this particular point in his life. Yeah. We're not yeah. downplaying yeah. it, yeah. but it's it's it appears much more in his later writings. This is a good segue to go into the relationship that then happens as a sort of like triangulation of sorts between Spielrein, Jung, and uh, Freud insofar as that ultimately there's a connection that's forced between Sabina and, 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 and Sigmund. Yes, but before that... Freud comes to visit Jung. They go boating. And Freud is like, so this is like important (laughs) plot moving things. Freud is like, uh, you know, (laughs) there's some word that, that, that you've, you've been having an affair with one of your patients and, and Jung just straight up, straight up denies it. It's absolutely untrue. Well, of course it is. So I've been telling everyone. What's being said? I don't know. But the woman's been bragging about it. That somebody's sending out anonymous letters. Usual sort of thing. 
bound to happen sooner or later. It's an occupational hazard. And then he cuts things off in a really brutal way. Yeah. Wish Spiel Ryan. And then Freud is gone and Emma Jung is happy. And then Spielrein comes rushing into Jung's office and she is so pissed off because Jung wrote to her mother. And this really did happen, yeah. actually. Um, and Spielrein's like, what the fuck? Like, I'm still your I'm still your patient. And he's like, no, 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 you're you're absolutely not. Um, and you know, your mother wrote to me and and I told her I can't see you anymore unless like it's in my office and I told her here's what my fees are. Mm. And he doesn't need the money. That's the, like he's, so she stabs him. She slashes his cheek with a letter opener, which really did happen. This also reminds me, remember when we talked about um, observations on transference love? Like this is the thing that happens with the insurance agent and the free thinker. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) Like, um, you know, the, the atheist dies without being, being shriven. Um, but the, the minister gets, um, an insurance policy. It's like, this is what happens when you give in to the force of sexual desire in the patient. Although as Patrick has pointed out there, you know, from the historical record, we do not know whether or not this actually was being driven by Spielrein and all. And perhaps it very much was coming from Jung. I, we have no way to know, but in the film, she stabs him in the face with a letter opener and then leaves him 20 francs, which is his fee. And honestly, it's like a mic drop. It's a great kind of moment. And then now Patrick, this is then when we get, um, Spielrein writing to Freud being like, will you see me in Vienna? And Freud's like writing to Jung being like, who, who do you know her? Yeah. Who, who is this lady? <laughs> New number, who this? Exactly. To gloss sort of what happens here, essentially, both in the film and in real life, Freud accepts Jung's denial of having sexual relationships, uh, having a sexual relationship with Sabina Spielrein at face value. And because of his previous inclination, as already established in the film and in his biography, takes the rumors themselves as signs of the resistances that he himself has already come to know from the broader public vis-a-vis psychoanalysis, that this yeah. is a calumny and, you know, it's tied into, of course, with the, again, there's the anti-Semitism here in all of this, right? Just, just to state this baldly, part of the, the, the libel against psychoanalysis during this pre-war, pre-World War I period and well into the Second World War is this idea that this is just a vector for Jewish doctors to get access to Aryan women privately and that the sexualization of everything that Freud does is essentially a deliberate sort of degenerate rendering perverse the family. This probably should sound very familiar, right? There's, it, it's a yeah. typical moral sexual panic of, of, of kinds we've seen before and, yeah. and we're currently seeing now and other things, right? So we also then get Freud writing to Spielrein and this is, you know, again, it's the actual historical letter yeah. and he is like, suppress this, forget yeah. it, which is yeah. like hilarious coming from the person who is, you know, a theorist of perhaps our greatest theorist yeah. of repression. He's basically saying this is this is actually this is actually your transferential baggage and yeah. so, so what happens again is Freud believes Jung and together they sort of Freud writes back and rejects the Spielrein, right? And this is in Launer's account the, the letters are not we don't have all of them between all three parties in different directions. It appears that you know, Jung Freud may have kind of suspected Jung of some stuff and and Jung may have in addition to lying to to Freud uh, and obviously trying to sort of like either just straight up lie to or gaslight Sabina Spielrein, 
was deceptive for, for Freud with for Freud about some other things. And Freud may have been kind of po- like Freud may have been lying a little bit. Like it's, it, it, no one looks good coming out of this except for Sabina Spielrein. Yeah, uh, totally. She's the only one who she's is, the only one with yeah, the integrity who t- did to like move forward and and be like, well, no, this is this. I need this to be redressed. And that's when he, she the letter, the rejection that she gets from Freud is 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 sort of the final straw, and that's what drives her to to do what happens next. Spielrein comes to see Jung on the occasion of learning that he is leaving uh, the Bergerholtzli. Um, and she tells him, and, and you know, so she, even then, she's like, she's like a fucking class act, okay? Yeah. Um, she's like, Freud loves you. Like, Jung, Freud loves you, but also like you lied to him. Um, and she wants, she wants him to tell Freud the truth. Um, and she wants Freud to write her back to confirm, you know, she wants her reputation back because I think we haven't said this enough, but like she's in medical school. She is training to become a psychologist and, you know, a, and a psychoanalyst specifically. The only really good thing we see Jung do, honestly, in this film as a doctor or maybe as a person is be encouraging to her about this and specifically um, to her, I think as a woman at this, at this time and even suggesting to her that her own struggles as a patient might be a strength as a clinician. Right. But anyway, so Jung is like, okay, I will do this. Um, And he does confess to Freud in a letter um, to a father, you know, as specifically to Freud as his father figure. In view of my friendship for the patient and her complete trust in me, what I did was indefensible. I confess this very unhappily to you, my father figure. (laughs) Um, And Freud apologizes in a letter to Spielrein and then they head to America. And this is the only time that Freud ever went to America. Um, and they they do some fan service for people who are into psychoanalysis yeah. by doing the famous line where they're pulling into New York Harbor. Take it from me. What you're looking at is the future. You think they know we're on our way, bringing them the plague. But first there is... A scene when they're still in the middle of the voyage, they're on the deck, um, and you get a scene that sort of mirrors the one with Otto Gross, which is like a sort of sort of mutual analysis. Yeah. And Jung is like telling him, he's, Jung throughout the this film tells Freud his dreams, and they're these are dreams that are like attested. There, yeah. he wrote them down at the time. I probably because I just can't stand Jung and I also couldn't stand him as portrayed here. I like became selectively deaf during this. I was like, this is really boring. I don't care. Um, it's the but, dream about the horse, right? Is that the, this yeah. is the, now the horse was earlier, but this, oh, okay. this, okay. this dream yeah, yeah. actually was interesting. This, this dream is more interesting. It's not the horse dream. This is the dream about uh, the Swiss Austrian border. Yeah. Um, and Where only good it's things happen. So <laughs> it's so obvious that it's about like the breakdown of their relationship, and Freud is like he spells this out. But then, and then Jung's like, "How about you? Any, any any good dreams lately?" And Freud's like, "Well, I had an elaborate dream, but I don't think I should tell you." And Jung sees this as a slap in the face, right? Yeah. That you are not my colleague. 
you are my inferior. But honestly, if you are cool with somebody anointing you like the crown prince um, and uh, your symbolic son, this seems super okay to me. Like, yeah, there are going to be some things I'm going to (laughs) keep. I'm going to keep from you. You know, I think in the context of the film, the implication of, I mean, maybe I'm saying the obvious, but the implication in the film is that it was probably a dream about Jung. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's, I mean, like, like Jung, like getting on the boat, like, like Jung, like parts ways. Cause he's got a first class cabin, right? They clearly there's signs yes. of fracture happening between them. But like Jung is it kind of in this portrayal looks like he's the golden child, right? Yes. And all this, and he, and he, he expects was to be right? during this yeah. period. He was absolutely. Yeah. And this is part, we should say of Freud's lifelong pattern, which he fully admitted to of like making best friends and then breaking up with them. And, you know, the best friends are often his colleagues. So, you know, Fleece is one of them. Jung is one of them. You know, there, there are more to come in the future. This, by the way, was an important moment. This America trip in the history of psychoanalysis. It's the first and only time that Freud goes to America. Uh, his lectures are wildly successful. I wanted more of the America. I mean, like we never see them disembark, right? Right. We, yeah. we, do, we do. The last, we do get an amazing shot where as Freud pronounces that it's a plague, we cut to their point of view and Freud is holding a cigar and the Statue of the Liberty is, uh, of Liberty is between them and the cigar is sort of like just below her midriff as, as the uh-huh. boat moves. It's, it's, it's a visual pun. Yeah, it's a visual pun. Uh, and sometimes Ooh, the cigar is much through. more than a cigar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I wanted more of the American trip. Like we, I will talk about Freud's visit to America some other point. We will that, do that a Freud in America yeah. episode because there's 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 lots and lots about that Freud has to say about America. None of it flattering. Um, meanwhile, back in Zurich, Sabina Spielrein goes to visit Jung because she has sent him her dissertation, um, which I believe was on schizophrenia. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, so to say something about her. I'll talk about her career after the movie, uh, after after the movie ends, after our discussion of the movie ends. But her uh, academic work was truly remarkable. Uh, her her medical dissertation was a monograph on speech dysfunction in schizophrenic, like pressured speech. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's worth saying here that she's one of the first people to write about that from an analytic perspective. Mm-hmm. And then there's a like a 20 or 30 year gap before anyone else does. And then Lacan famously does it later in the 60s. But like there is a point at which yeah. uh, the understanding the, the verbal production of people who are having psychotic breaks or whatnot as having its own structure, that's an insight that she sort of has. Yeah, much very earlier. Early yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so her dissertation then also becomes, I think it's the first psychoanalytic dissertation to qualify, to be deemed worthy of getting, a, of earning its writer a medical degree. And it becomes, I think, the first psychoanalytic dissertation monograph published as such in several other journals. So it's a remarkable one of which, piece of scholarship. Yeah. One of which Jung is editing. Yeah. Um, and that is how, why she comes back um, because she's like, will you publish this? And can yeah. we work together like as grownups? Um, and and everyone, they both are like, of course, yes, we yeah, can and do that. Was, and like yeah. immediately cut back to their apartment, uh, to her apartment. Um, and she's talking about um, this, what I'm going to call for shorthand. It's, I'm not being like super technical about it, but is, is a sort of predecessor to, to the death drive. Uh, Professor Freud claims that the sexual drive arises from a simple urge towards pleasure. 
If he's right, the question is why is this urge so often successfully repressed? You used to have a theory involving the impulse towards destruction and self-destruction, losing oneself. Well, suppose we think of sexuality as fusion, losing oneself, as you say, but losing oneself in the other. In other words, destroying one's own individuality. And wouldn't the ego and self-defense automatically resist that impulse? You mean for selfish, not for social reasons? Yes. I'm saying that perhaps true sexuality demands the destruction of the ego. I'm going to go ahead and say that this is the only actually hot scene between them because she actually gets to talk about her own fucking ideas yeah. for the yes. first time. Yeah. And he's kneeling. He's in this sort of like posture where it's like, and she's at the desk. Yeah. And yes, it, it does lead into a sex scene. There's lots of spanking and lots of mirrors. She's very into watching herself get spanked. But it is important also because this is the only scene where he treats her as somebody who's like, she's she's coming up with these like really novel and creative ideas um, about, yeah, again, what I'm kind of calling a proto-death drive, except for her, it has much more to do with sexuality yeah. than it eventually will for Freud. Freud. Yeah. Um, and But yeah. then, you know, so she's like, I'm going to leave Zurich after graduating. Um, and we get this kind of nice moment where he's like dreams about going with her, but eventually is like, I am a bourgeois coward. Yeah. Um, and he's like, she's like, maybe I'm going to go to Vienna. And she's like, he's like, can you, can you maybe not go to Vienna? And she's like, and again, we go back to this freedom. She's like, I need, uh, I must go wherever I need to feel free. And he starts sobbing. Don't. So after after that, um, we cut to Spielrein in Vienna in Freud's office. Hmm. Um, and they are talking about ideas. And she's talking about how sexuality involves self-annihilation. Um, and she's talking about sort of the relationship between sexuality and our inclinations towards destruction and death. Um, and you see, I mean, I think the way the film is really painting this is this is when Freud starts thinking about the death drive. I don't know whether that's true or not. But he's he's really intrigued, although he disagrees with the formulation. But again, triangulate major triangulation happens here because Spielhorn is trying to sort of mend the argument, like the quarrel between Jung and Freud. Um, and Freud goes, and this I actually am quoting, I, I wrote it down. He's like, I have no dispute with Dr. Jung. I was just mistaken about him. I didn't bargain for the second rate mysticism. Um, and of course, like a minute later, he alludes to his dispute, but she, she's not able, she's not able to, um, to do this, which, which is fine. And, but they really end up having the conversation in a more fully fleshed out way about ordinary unhappiness as like the best possible outcome versus the possibility of bringing more to the patient. And you get this view here that like Spielrein is just going to be a much more incisive listener and a more creative theorist than Jung. Yeah, it's it, the the other interesting aspect of this conversation too is, is that the question of like Freud as pessimist and Jung 
as optimist, which is sort of like these things the film kind of plays with. Like Rory just wants to do, heal people back to kind of maintenance level norm in yeah. a shitty world. Whereas Jung has because the world is as it is. Yeah. Whereas Jung, this sort of golden child, has this capacity to like create and dream of new possibilities while also being completely sort of inured to what that may be doing to other people and particularly yeah. people like Freud is, is that Spielhorn kind of represents a third place insofar as that she's gesturing towards some sort of healing possibility. Right. Yeah. And, and she remained, you know, she's she still after the one last time she saw Jung, she, she remained on, on good terms with the psychoanalytic establishment as a whole. And, you know, even she wrote to her father, right. Even after the Russian revolution, but she seems to be, the question of like her quote unquote optimism or pessimism doesn't come down. It isn't shaded as neatly. Instead, she seems to want to reconcile these two opposite men yeah. and the other vector of connection that she has with Freud, which is, which is speaks to this pessimism, optimism thing is Freud's like you, if Jung surprised you, that shouldn't have been the case because at the end of the day, you were Jewish and we're, we're Jews. Jewish. We're Jews. Yeah, and, we're Jews. And, yeah. and he says literally put not your trust in Aryans. Yeah. Put not your trust in Aryans. We're Jews, my dear Miss Beeline. And Jews we will always be. And, and then he asks her to take on a couple of his patients. Yeah. So she clearly entered, yeah. she, in, in a mode that is not the same as Freud, literally earlier when Otto Gross, we, we, we learned that Otto Gross is not doing well and Freud essentially says, to Jung, this is when they're on better terms, that now that Otto Gross is out of the picture, you are the chosen prince, right? Yeah. Here, here we have a scene in the office where he connects with Sabina Schwerer and Fridge connects with Sabina Schwerer and then gives him, refers clients to him and clearly, her, her sorry, yeah, there you go, talk about a slippage, uh, but clearly puts her in the position of not the chosen like prince or something, oh, it's not but a, as a colleague yes. and yeah. also as a member of this ethno-religious community. So it's a very different, much more real type of encounter. He's still talking down to yes, her though. Yes, like there is still yes. this sort of like, you're not a man yes. and, and you can't be yeah, my absolutely. equal, even though I also do respect you enough to want you to take on some yeah. of my patients. And, and she, yeah. yeah. She, when she becomes a member of the psychoanalytic, I think she's either the first or second woman member. And in, her, anyway, she's endorsed by Freud from the get go sure. and, yeah, and, and passes unanimously. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. And, and, and so the whole next section of the movie is the break between Jung and Freud. Um, Ooh, and it's so good. There's so many like amazing juicy shots of sad Jung in the, like the most opulent settings possible. Yeah. And Freud also actually. Um, and, but the, the, you know, Jung writes to Freud and he says, you treat your, you treat your friends like patients and you sit on your mountaintop. And yeah, we see Freud um, walking in this like very formal garden in, in Vienna. Um, and uh, he's narrating a letter, you know, where he's severing their relationship and you see him put Jung's picture in a box. And the, I just like, can't overstate the pettiness of, you know, because when you think about, you know, in an abstract way, you know, you don't have to subscribe to like the lone genius, like theory of, I don't know, what the fuck ever, in order to think, to, to kind of casually think about like Freud and Jung as these sort of like towering yeah. early 20th century figures. Um, 
But they're writing these letters that are just sort of like, you did this to me and, you know, this is how, and I just can't stand it. And like, you know, no, our friendship is, and like, we're just not, we're just not going to be friends anymore. Like, we're just not going to be friends anymore. And, you know, like. Cloyingly human. Yeah. 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 Um, and, And I would say that this is, this is the kind of thing that I'm going to paint with a really broad brush here. We talk about this as like, this is the way that teenage girls relate to each other. We don't associate it with, you know, men of science, but that is like absolutely what is happening is petty slights, taking too much food at the dinner table and not respecting someone in a particular context. But it's like some of the things on which they disagree theoretically are extraordinarily important. And we're clearly going to drive them apart regardless. But it is actually a lot of the personal stuff um, and temperament and disposition um, and personal slights that I think really do the trick. Yeah. It's it's striking too because Spielrein, who has every reason to be personally slighted by both these men, winds up forgiving both of them. Yeah. Right. And and also trying to to pursue a rapprochement between them. And when that fails, in many ways, her work is she cuts her own path, right? She, yeah. uh, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But but yeah, the break happens with Freud. Years pass. Like by this point, we're like 1914, maybe the war thirteen percent. We're right before the war, I think is about where things start to wind yeah. up. And she sees so we cut to yeah. Emma. And Sabina Spielrein, who we have not seen together since the beginning when Spielrein was helping out um, with that free association exhibit. And by the way, like the costumes are great in this film, but they're particularly great in this scene um, where they are set up finally as mirrors of one another. Um, They're both in white with like lacy collars and Spielrein is married, she's pregnant, and she says that she and her husband want a girl. And this blows Emma's mind after years of, I guess, being pressured to have a son by her husband, Jung, Mm -hmm. who had a bad relationship with his own father. Um, And Emma is like, I need you to help me with Jung. He hasn't recovered from the break with Freud. And in a very interesting reversal, she says if you were staying here, I'd ask you to analyze him. Yeah. And it, it, it's wild too, because like the response of, of Sabina Spiro is essentially to, to be like, no, that's not my ministry and I'm not staying here. She's like, like she, no, she's no, like, no, no one can help him more than you can. Yeah. She, she Which told, like, who knows if that's like true yeah. or if it's just like, you yeah. know, your problem. Yeah. She, she definitely extricates herself in yet in, in the final definitely. carriage from, from yet another triangulation, but not before she has one more talk with him. Yes. Uh, where he, he's surly and, and glum. She, she's like, your children are beautiful. And he's like, so you're married. Yeah. You're married. <laughs> Yeah. married to and, and and he's like already has another mistress by the way Tony Wolf who he has you know he has a very long standing another Jewish woman right yeah, like she's is, half Jewish yeah um, but yes she, um, yeah um, another former patient yeah. also training to be an analyst yeah. let it not be said that Carl Jung did not have a type yeah he was he, so he's kind of stuck in these repetitions yeah whereas she goes off and to do her own thing in, in a carriage now instead of being dragged somewhere in a carriage against her will. She is in a carriage going somewhere else uh, of her own accord. And she, let's just be clear that like, although, you know, she clearly loves him still, 
she has found her ordinary unhappiness, you know, mm-hmm. like she, she really has. She's, Jung is, has still, is still immersed in this pettiness. Yeah. Like you took Freud's side and, you know, he's really, he is the most histrionic figure in, in this film. Yeah. Certainly he's like, you know, my love for you is the most important thing in my life. It made me understand who I am. And then he's like, he like points to her belly and is like, that should be mine. Like, and his wife is like a few, is like a few steps. His wife who he's like hounded to have like, like, oh, you had girls first? Like, is yeah. like a few steps away. I have no sympathy for for Jung no. in this. Uh, I mean, at all. And no. especially it's, in this film. There's a certain irony too in, in the history of it. And I guess this is a segue in a moment where we can talk about Savina Spielrein in, in her own right. But that part of the reason why she's not so well known or was not so well known in the Anglophone world uh, and apart from, you know, being a woman and a Jewish woman and a woman operating behind what came to be called the Iron Curtain, uh, is that, and this is, again, a kind of irony, Jung did cite her a good deal, yeah, actually, yeah. and so did Freud. But when Jung was translated into the U.S. and became extremely popular in the 50s and 60s, for reasons that I just don't understand, the Maybe it was because they wanted to, to cater to cater to a type of like solitary genius type myth. Even mm-hmm. uh, they removed all the footnotes and citations from the editions of Jung that were that became bestsellers here. So, in other words, the oh, cite, yeah. the way in which he would in, in name check her, or even and Freud does name check her about vis a vis the death instinct, right? But he like uh, Jung was also very scrupulous about that. But and for an accident of like translation or stylistic practice or like publication house you know, best practices, she just, she just did not receive those citations and became a kind of forgotten figure who is, you know, I think done an injustice by this movie, uh, you know, but that's neither here nor there. I I, I can run through sort of like her own quick, like what, what happened to her? We we get little title cards. Please, please. First, I want to encourage people to check out her essay, her most famous essay, or the essay that comes up in this piece, right? In this film, which is, uh, I believe, Maybe dated 1915 was written earlier than that. It's, it's called "Destruction as a Cause of Coming into Being," right? And it's it's where she great artic- title. Yeah, it's a great title. It's a kind of dizzying work. It's a it's 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 a little overly referential. Some critics have said like it 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 resembles. Um, well, it's got notes of like Montaigne and even Lucretius in it, insofar as that she talks about these like cosmic oppositions between the need to create and the need to destroy. But what makes it interesting and very different from what Freud later will talk about as a death instinct and what we will talk about at, at great length as a death mm-hmm. instinct because they already have as a death drive is she is extremely invested, not just in sort of cosmic religious notes. And there are certain, there's even a shout out to Christ in this paper, which would shout out to Christ, which, which Freud, Freud is like, what, <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. You know, I, I'm with the con on this one where he's like, Oh, if we must say a few, we, I suppose we must say a few things about Christ. Cause he is after all a significant figure. And that, <laughs> <it's> like, okay, <laughs> yeah, that guy, we gotta, <laughs> don't forget about him. Uh, but, but, but the deal with her is that she's, she does a whole bunch of things that are innovative, right? And, and, and some people have said even that, she, for example, that like you could trace uh, Jung's notion of archetypes back to her. Or uh, There's a shout out to that in yeah. this film too, where she has a whole thing about how like there's a little bit of woman in every man and vice versa. Mm-hmm. She's other, the other thing she sort of does in, in a kind of Prussian way in this paper though, is she grounds the notion of 
a destructive impulse in a very firm dialectical relationship with the a instinct the reproductive impulse yes right yes. and that both and that grounding is sort of mediated by her position as a woman right so the the central thesis of the paper right is that there is a kind of you can understand their life suffering the universe like it's, it's kind of a metaphysical paper in this way Jungian in that way. Uh, yeah, Jungian in that way. It's or, or even like apophatic, right? It's trying to dance. It's trying to articulate something that, that individual expression has a real, really sort of kind of bends when it gets near. Is this idea that there is an opposition between the impulse to reproduce and the impulse to survive? So sex is actually opposed to survival, oh, at least insofar as that. And in this way, she actually in- anticipates a lot of what happens. Shay later evolutionary thinking vis-a-vis like genes and like the indifference of genes and how genes want to propagate themselves and they don't give a shit about you as the person who carries them, right? In fact, they don't want anything, but that they exist to do this. Uh, Is She essentially argues that the desire to preserve oneself through living, but also as a being with certain types of boundaries is in a difficult relationship with the biological need to of the species to reproduce itself. Yeah. And which in the case of individual people involves sexual experiences, which are fundamentally undoing of the ego and involve a kind of, you know, as the French say, little death, I suppose. Uh, but also, and more specifically in the case of women involves very real experiences of bodily sundering and also of potentially lethal consequences in terms of childbirth. So as she sees it, the opposition between life and death is not as like an abstract dyadic conversation between like the Apollinian, Apollo's creative impulse versus like the Dionysian destructive impulse, right? Or between Eros and Thanatos. It's about how the reproduction of the species and individual choices uh, of, uh, and here it's very hard not to read this biographically, right? The idea, women must, in order to do this creative thing of giving birth in Sabina Spielrein's world, mm-hmm. must give up their own professional careers, yeah. must give potentially ruin their own bodies, et cetera. So it becomes a situation where the this abstract dialectic between principles is instead grounded in like sexuation or sexual difference mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in biological dependence in this way that's really kind of it was still striking now, even if parts of the of the essay read very sort of kind of woo retrospectively, and there are some very nineteenth century aspects to it. But so, so she wrote this paper. It's it's really good. It's really interesting. Um, and it's you know she wrote yeah. about like thirty papers. Or oh, she's incredible. Like she's prolific. quite prolific. Let's let's just be really yeah. clear. This is this is the one that is most cited. Yeah, there is there was a new essential. There's a new essential. Uh, Sabina Spielrein writings, I think maybe Routledge or Palgrave did it. I will include, I'll put it in the show It'll be in the show notes wrong with these two biographies. But basically, yeah, her deal is after, after, so she joined, after getting her medical doctorate and becoming an analyst and joining the analytic, uh, the, the, the International um, Analytic Association under Freud uh, and with unanimous approval, she is exceedingly prolific. Uh, writing not just about schizophrenia and language and uh, dealing with biology and trying to reconcile certain psychoanalytic principles with biological underpinnings, uh, for better and for worse. She also gets really, really involved in child psychology and in developmental psychology and in doing psychoanalysis with children. Uh, She goes from Vienna and Zurich, where she's, I I think the film is sort of implied she's on her way from Vienna 
she stops in Zurich and she's going to Geneva, which is where she wound up after her uh, analysis was done with Freud. Because uh, you know, Freud analyzed her too, right? Or so that's, that's the trend. So that's the proposition that's made in the film, right? I, I, the, the point here is that after receiving Freud's imprimatur and getting her training analysis and becoming analysis herself, she then goes to Geneva. In Geneva, she arguably begins before Anna Freud or Melanie Klein do uh, play therapy. Yeah. So like seeing yeah. children, having them work with toys and then like, you know, because you can't do normal language for association with a kid who's, you know, not fully verbal yet. Right. right. So instead you have to monitor their play. And so, so she sort of pioneers this kind of like baby watching sort of like approach, which is really interesting. She gets involved with a lot of people who are major figures in child psychology. Well, in Geneva, in fact, her student who both her student and then her patient, or rather her the person who she performed a training analysis for was Jean Piaget. Yeah, Jean Piaget. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of his theories of creativity, et cetera, may be tethered to her. Right. So people who are invested in developmental psychology, via Piaget mm-hmm. may know him from that. And she has these legacies. Uh, after the Russian Revolution, she eventually does return to Russia. She had separated from her husband for a period of time. He had gone back first, I believe, and had had another daughter with another woman, but they reunite. They have a, a substantial, they have several daughters, I believe. Um, the rest of the, by the way, the rest of her siblings go on to storied careers in in the fine arts, in uh music specifically, but also in medicine and the sciences. Several of them are in the U.S. now. Again, it's a brilliant, deeply troubled family, but she sort of has her own family and in the Soviet Union participates in, it's an interesting year, we'll have to cover some other time, but there's a a sort of an efflorescence of psychoanalytic efforts at the end of the revolution. Or we talked about how Otto Gross represented like this anarchist vision of psychoanalysis. There were definitely Marxist psychoanalysis. Some of them were Russian, many of them were Russian Jews and they returned to Russia and their whole thing was we can use psychoanalytic theory to do things uh, on the social level that have clear uh, implications for like uplifting workers, et cetera. So among other things, she founds a preschool that runs on psychoanalytic principles. Uh, and among the attendees in this preschool is Stalin's son, Vasily, who uh, comes to an unfortunate uh, and not too dissimilar from Otto Gross's. But that's not the, that's neither here nor there. The point is that she becomes a titanic figure in the emergent field of psychoanalysis in the Soviet Union, that then is largely purged as sort of a tragic story, but she remains a figure in psychology and other university departments there. She uh, trains, among other people, uh, Lev Vygotsky, who may be familiar to a lot of people. And then finally, by, and this is a sort of a tragic end to it, her husband dies uh, and she and her children are killed by, I think, an Einsatz group in, in 1942 in Rostov and Don. They're taken to the local synagogue and shot along with most of the town's Jewish population. So there is this way in which her story is of uh, marked personal triumphs, of crossing all these disciplinary boundaries and very real-life borders, of being not like the father of her own fields, right, in this gendered way, but rather something much more generative of these, being, having all these mentorship relationships. Yeah. Uh, but then also of erasure by the archives and the coincidences thereof, but literally at the hands of, of, of Hitler's genocidaires. So it's quite a 20th century story in that way. It's profoundly sad. Profoundly yeah. sad. So final thoughts on, on A Dangerous Method? I love this movie. This is like a warm blanket for me. 
And I keep going back and forth every time I watch it. I always come away wondering who. Obviously, Sabina is supposed to come out the quote-unquote winner at the end, I guess. She's the most composed. She is the most ahead of her. She's the one that has like a bright future. Freud's like, I think he like passes out in a scene pretty close to the end. He's clearly on the end of his ropes. And we just have sad dad Young sitting around. Um, but there's that one scene in the movie when Young claims to be able to predict the creaking of the house and he anticipates yeah. it and predicts it. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know why, but that scene does a lot of work in my head to make this movie feel like it's validating Jung's yeah. uh, breaks from Freud in a lot of ways. So I, I kind of, I don't know how I feel about where that lands. Uh, that's the only like knuckle in this that I kind of run into every time I watch it. But if this movie was a warm bath, I would soak in it all day. I enjoy it. Four out of five. I, I give it four out of five cigars. Yeah, four out of five. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I Is that a people, rating system? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I've just created it. Four out of five cigars. Maybe four Love and it. a half. I, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. I get a little bit impatient with films that telegraph their themes in heavy-handed ways that could be idiosyncratic. I don't think it is. Yeah, I, I liked. I liked it. I thought it was very good. I, I want to see more psychoanalysis in movies. Like I think Sabina Spielrein wasn't the, the Sabina Spielrein in this movie is not. I mean, Keira Knightley does a great job, but it's not. I don't think it does, again, does justice to this historical figure if that's the thing we care about. But I do think it was, I, I wonder what people would think of the movie walking into it knowing nothing about Jung in particular. Mm. And if if they might just see this as like a tragic story of this nice man caught in a marriage where he's unhappy and having the, like, I wonder if people might actually identify with him. In you some, think? Yes. Cause I feel like I, yes. everything yeah. in this, in this film is militating against that reading. I feel like even if you care, uh, like don't fuck your patients yeah, is pretty basic. Yeah. 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 Um, and I understand because I have spent a lot of time reading about the history of psychoanalysis that there, that, so many the the reasons that we have many of the rules that we have today, the reasons that we have professional codes of ethics and things like that, are because of of things that happened that taught folks that those guardrails needed to be in place. Um, but he knew Jung knows this. Okay, he's not Otto Gross. Otto Gross is like this is actually, you know, sexual libertinism, freedom. I'm helping people become more free. Jung is like, I am doing the wrong thing and I'm going to do it anyway and I don't give a fuck who it hurts. So I, I think it really shows him in a, in a accurate, um, accurately negative light. I, I, I don't know. I feel like I maybe land on the other side, Abby, because I, yeah. I do feel like in, in a... In the way the film is constructed, having I didn't go into this completely blind, but I didn't know a lot about Young when I first saw this. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense of like you meet a naive, a profoundly naive Young at the be- at the beginning. He then yeah. gets a father figure who introduces him to Otto Gross, who gives him permission to do unseemly things, and then it's it's it almost feels like Otto Gross's influence is an extension of Freud's teachings in Young's mm-hmm. life, and then when he acts out on Otto Gross's like prodding and then begins to meet repercussions for making this mistake with his patient, Freud just washes his hands of his influence and walks away. And there's kind of a sense of like Jung, Jung gets kind of Jung's a sad dad who was done harm by people who should have loved him. Right. 
at the end of the film. And I can totally see people glomming onto that, like having Mm. identification with it. I guess I think, uh, I guess I think that the original bad dad here is Spielrein's dad. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. For Jung sure. uses it's not just that he's sleeping yeah. with his former patient um and like would be mentee. It's that he is specifically using the Kate the material, the psychic material of Spielreins that comes up um about her being turned on yeah. by violence in the bedroom which originated from her father hitting her and those like primal feelings of um being turned on by shame and humiliation and that he's willing to then play act that um, which i'm totally fine with in an, any situation where it's not the doctor well i think that, right? that i think that I, I don't think any of us are disagreeing here but yeah. i think actually what what that crucial distinction that's at play for you is not, and which I, again, cosign 100%, is not one that I think the audience that isn't invested in either of these figures or in the practice of psychotherapy necessarily enters the film with, right? And so there is, what I wonder about that and then is how the countervailing weight mm-hmm. of essentially just like the the sort of the BDS and Emmy elements or just like the kinkiness of the whole thing. Sure. Like even the historical uh, setting becomes like a giant sort of exercise and like camp and, uh, camp and kink in this way, it right? It does. S- such mm-hmm. that it becomes like- It's very beautiful the yeah. way it's, it's sex mm-hmm. scenes are staged. But, but, but it, to, to, to drive the point home, it, it can be, it could be the entire film can be read as like a, I'm thinking about these other Cronenberg films like Crash, where it's like, it, it just becomes a spectacle of people doing stuff beyond the limits of transgression. And they've all sort of like seemed to, because they're all in this world that is so lush and mm-hmm. we only ever see them and we don't see the perpetrators outside the frame or what they go on to become, it all somehow becomes as if consensual and as, it just all becomes like this kind of weird generative play space. I don't know. I, I don't, I think that's bad. I think it's a shortcoming of the movie in some ways, but I, I don't know. I Interesting. Yeah. But I'm right there with you, Patrick. I do want there to be yeah. more movies that feature psychoanalysis in action. Yeah. I'm hungry for I think, it. I think we can all be, I think we can all be on the same page. And we should do more episodes like this then. The 7% solution. Oh God. I, I, yes. That's it. Anyone looking for a movie for the summer for the waiting days, 7% solution. Yeah. Um, folks, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We will be back soon. Bye. Bye. Love you. This has been an episode of Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin, and today I was joined by Patrick Blanchfield and Dan Yowell. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell. Theme music by Formal Chicken. Formal Chicken.